السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وخاتم النبيين محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وسلم تسليما Respected listeners, we gather again for the continuation of the topic of the traits of hypocrisy. In the last session, I began commenting on another set of verses in the Holy Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks of a hypocrite. Allah says, وَمِنَ النَّاسِ مَنْ يُعْجِبُكَ قَوْلُهُ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَيَشْهِدُ اللَّهَ عَلَى مَا فِي قَلْبِهِ وَهُوَ أَلَدُّ الْخِصَامِ وَإِذَا تَوَلَّى سَعَى فِي الْأَرْضِ لِيُفْسِدَ فِيهَا وَيُهْلِكَ الْحَرْثُ وَالنَّسْلِ وَاللَّهُ لَا يُحِبُّ الْفَسَادِ وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُ اتَّقِ اللَّهَ أَخَذَتْهُ الْعِزَّةُ بِالْإِثْمِ فَحَسْبُهُ جَهَنَّمُ وَلَبِئْسَ الْمِهَادِ وَمِنَ النَّاسِ مَنْ يَشْرِي نَفْسَهُ ابْتِغَاءَ مَرْضَاتِ اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ رَؤُوفٌ بِالْعِبَادِ Allah says of the people that there is one, there is he, whose words please you and impress you in the worldly life. And he makes Allah a witness over what's in his heart. And he is the most quarrelsome of the adversaries. And when he turns, i.e. when he turns away from you and goes away somewhere else, when he turns, he strives in the land or he strives on earth to spread corruption and to destroy land and livestock. And Allah does not like corruption. And when it is said to him, be wary of Allah, fear Allah, arrogance in sin seizes him. So Jahannam is sufficient for him, and an evil, an evil and abode it is. And they are of the people, one, and there is of the people one who sells his soul, seeking the pleasure of Allah. And Allah is most compassionate with the servants. So this is a translation of this set of verses. I began commenting on the very first verse and I said quite a bit, so I won't repeat myself, but I'll just quickly recap and mention a few other things. So in the first verse of this set, Allah says, and of the people there is one whose words please you, impress you, in the worldly life. And he makes Allah a witness over what's in his heart. And he is the most quarrelsome 
of the adversaries. So I spent quite a bit of time explaining and he is the most quarrelsome of the adversaries. And indeed, this is actually a trait of hypocrisy. Constantly arguing, debating. In fact, the word alad is translated as quarrelsome. <coughs> and it comes, the root word of alad is derived from the two sides of the neck, especially the neck of a camel. And this may sound surprising, what has this got to do with the topic, but it gives us an understanding and an insight into why this quarrelsome person has been called alad. So the word is derived from the root word which denotes or speaks of the sides of the neck. Then it became more widely used to refer to the two sides. So why the quarrelsome person has been called alad is because whenever you argue with him, or sorry, whenever he argues with you, or you protest something to him, or you plead with him, remonstrate with him, then there is no winning that quarrel, there is no winning that argument, because when you catch him here, he jumps to the other side. And when you catch him there, he jumps to the other side. So because he's constantly jumping from one side to another, you catch him here, he runs somewhere else, makes another point. When you catch him out in that point, he runs back to the other side and makes another point. So his constant fleeing from one side to the other is what eventually gives him the name Alad, derived from the two sides of the neck. So. And he is the most quarrelsome of the adversaries. And as the Prophet said, in Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha relates that the Prophet said, Sahadith Bukhari and others, in Indeed, the most detested of men in the sight of Allah is the most quarrelsome adversary. The one who constantly argues. He is detested not only by the creation, but he is detested by the creator. And of course, we, all, we are all argumentative. Allah says of human beings that we have created from a drop. Who are we ultimately? We have been created from a drop, a drop of semen. A drop which, once it's secreted from the body, makes ghusl obligatory upon the individual. One drop. Then Allah says, فَإِذَا هُوَ خَصِيمٌ مُبِينٌ and lo and behold, he is now a clear adversary. Arguing. Always arguing. And in another verse, وَكَانَ الْإِنسَانُ أَكْثَرَ شَيْءٍ جَدَلًا And man is, in, man is most argumentative of things. 
or man is in most things argumentative. And that's the nature of man. We always have something to say. Always. So we need to work on ourselves. In fact, Imam Bukhari and others relate that once the Prophet وسلم, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal relates this part of the hadith, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal relates, and then the others relate the latter part. So the first part of the story is this. Imam Ahmad relates that the Prophet وسلم, one night he went to visit his daughter Fatima radiyallahu anha and Ali radiyallahu and he said to both of them, this was earlier on, earlier on in the night, he said to both of them, rise and pray. Do qiyam. Rise and stand before Allah and pray salah, meaning tahajjud. He told them that, then he went back home and he began praying salah. And he continued in his salah. So because the homes were very close to each other, he heard no sound from the house of Fatima radiallahu anha. So a short while later he went back and he found both of them sleeping. So this latter part of the hadith is unrelated by Bukhari and others as well, that the Prophet visited his daughter Fatima and Ali radiallahu anhuma, and they were both sleeping. So he woke them up and he said, why don't you rise and pray? So we can only understand this hadith of Bukhari if we understand the earlier part of the story which is related by Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. That he had already gone and told them to rise. But they had stayed sleeping. Or had gone to sleep. So when he went back, this was actually the second time. So he went back and he said to Ali, he said to both of them, why don't you rise and pray? So Ali radiallahu anhu sat up and he said, Ya Rasulullah, our souls are in the hands of Allah. If he wishes to wake us up, he will wake us up. So, that we fell asleep, that was a qadr of Allah. Our, hands are in the, uh, our souls are in the hands of Allah. And if Allah wished, Allah would wake us up. He, Allah it's up to Allah whether he wakes us up or not. So the Prophet ﷺ didn't say anything. He rose and as he was leaving, he slapped his thighs, the Prophet ﷺ. And he kept on saying, وَكَانَ الْإِنسَانُ أَكْثَرَ شَيْءٍ جَدَلَى Reciting the verse of the Qur'an. وَكَانَ الْإِنسَانُ أَكْثَرَ شَيْءٍ جَدَلَى وَكَانَ الْإِنسَانُ أَكْثَرَ شَيْءٍ جَدَلَى That indeed man is argumentative in most things. So... We shouldn't have a reply to everything. It's natural, it's instinctive. And there's a reason for this. Whenever someone points out something, criticizes, and maybe not even criticize, makes a suggestion, we are all insecure in some way. And we often take Criticism to be personal criticism. We perceive it as an attack on us. Our brain works very fast. And the calculation is this. I make a mistake of something. 
I shouldn't have placed this glass here. Someone tells me you shouldn't have put that glass there. The way the brain works is as follows. He is telling me I shouldn't have put that glass there. This belittles me. This diminishes me. This makes me look small. This is an attack on me. This isn't criticism. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't uh, a corrective measure. It's an attack. It's an attack on me, my ego, my psyche, my heart, my being, my personality. If that person attacks me, it makes me nothing. And then this is how the brain goes into overdrive. So what's, what's the reaction? The mind thinks that the person is being attacked, is under mortal threat. So the hormones and the thought processes of fight or flight or fight kick in. And the person then has to fight. It's almost like I have to defend myself. And then the person reacts, erupts in anger. Like an animal. When an animal, like a cat, when a cat is under threat, what does it do? If it can't, it, sometimes it may run away. But on most occasions, depending on the threat, on many occasions, it won't run, but it'll stay there. And it'll inflate itself, it'll puff itself, it, it, it will arch its back, its hairs will stand on end. One of the reasons for doing this is to make itself look larger than it is. So the arching of the back, the hair standing on end, all of that is designed to inflate the body and appear to be, more, uh, appear to be stronger than the cat really is. And it's just an example of one cat, but many other animals do similar things. And the cat stays there, growls, making noises, because it's, it feels it's under mortal threat. Its fight mechanism is kicking in. So when someone tells another, oh, you shouldn't have put that glass there, an innocent comment, we react as though we are under mortal threat our fight mechanism kicks in. And it's almost as though we are fighting for our survival. And this person who's making a very innocent suggestion is actually a lethal threat to our very being and existence. These are our insecurities. A person who is secure or emotionally healthy and intelligent and stable, his reaction will be, and it should be, you shouldn't have put that glass there. Oh, sorry, I didn't realise. Jazakumullahu khairah for telling me. Alhamdulillah. And over and done with. And that's it. And this should be our reaction for everything. For everything. If someone, yes, yeah, some people do make snidey remarks. They do like to deliver a punch in the guise of advice. They do like to give a few slaps in the guise of helping. So I'm only trying to help you, but in reality they're enjoying the thrill of slapping you about emotionally and mentally. So you do get idiots like that. 
but hopefully they, that should be discernible. But on most occasions, people want to help and advise. If you can tell that this person's being stupid, then what do you do? There's no point fighting. Alhamdulillah, ignore them. Ignore the ignorant. There's no point bringing yourself down to the level of the ignorant. Salamun alaykum la jahileen. Allah says in the Quran, peace be unto you. We don't seek the ignorant. So if someone's being an idiot, fine, you can ignore them. But otherwise, anyone else. And unfortunately, we react in this manner not to strangers, but even with our loved ones. So a husband tells a wife something, she reacts. Wife tells a husband something, he reacts. Brothers, blood brothers, siblings say something to each other, everyone begins reacting. And this is not the behavior of a mu'min. A mu'min is open, open-minded, open-hearted, willing to receive help and advice. Willing. A believer is a mirror of another believer. And one of the meanings of this is that a believer is able to, just as a mirror, is able to point out your faults, your imperfections, your blemishes, your spots and your warts. You don't smash the mirror in anger, do you? If, if you see that, oh, there's a mark here, do you get angry at the mirror? That the mirror pointed out the mark and the blemish on my face? No. You're actually glad and you, thought, you feel grateful and fortunate that you were able to see this in time before you went out. So rather than smash the mirror, maybe next time you remind yourself, well, I'm in a rush now, but when I come back, I must polish the mirror so that next time it's even more clearer. So you don't punish the mirror, you polish it. So similarly, when a mu'min who should serve as a mirror acts as a mirror to another believer and points out their faults sincerely and wisely, then a mu'min, a believer, is actually grateful to that person. Just as Umar ibn al-Khattab used to say, May Allah have mercy on a man who grants me a gifts of my errors. And indeed, he was like that. I'll say more about this later. I've mentioned this before that uh, I only teach adults. And in the Alim class, even though the students are studying Quran and Hadith and Tafsir, I often have to tell them that in learning, be like children. Don't be adults in learning, be like children. And there's a reason for that. That even as teachers... When teachers point out a mistake to adult students or correct them, (coughs) 
There was an incident where one alim, one of his students, he was very eager to step on the musalla and lead salah, very eager, very pushy, very forward. So one day, the alim, because he was, whenever he was absent, the other person would always try to take the place of the sheikh. So when the sheikh was there, he stepped forward to lead salah. So because the students couldn't get onto the sajjad and the musalla to lead salah, what's the next best position? The muqim to give iqamah. So he started giving iqamah. And he was unable to pronounce the words of the iqamah correctly. So the shaykh corrected him. It said he never forgave the shaykh for correcting him in his iqamah. He never forgave him. He was bitter that why was I shown up in front of everyone? So when teachers point out to adult students, that's incorrect. Read again. Adult students, how do they respond? Allah, because they're older now. They've got 25, 30 years of life experience behind them. All of that has accumulated. What happens? Well, before I explain what adults do, let me explain what children do. So beautiful. This is why I often say, be like children. A child is in a class of 30. Everyone's watching and listening. Everyone's looking at each other. And you tell a child, no, 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 you shouldn't have done that. That's wrong. You do it like this. And the child is told this in front of 29 others. How does a child respond? The child may giggle. The child may smile and say, oh, I didn't realize. I'm sorry. Okay. And done and forgotten. That's how a child is. The child does not take it to heart. The child apologizes. The child rectifies it. And not only that, the child is often grateful. Oh, miss, oh, teacher, I'm sorry I didn't realize. Oh, okay, that's good. Okay, I'll do it like this from now. And you can see that with children. They are innocent. Allahu Akbar. And that innocence is so beautiful. They don't have years of pent-up frustration and anger. They don't have all these deep, accumulating insecurities. They're not bitter. They are clean of heart. So when that clean of heart, innocent child is told publicly in front of 29 others that you were wrong, you shouldn't have done this, it should have been done this way, the instant reaction and response is, oh, sorry, I didn't realise, okay. In contrast, when a teacher tells an adult student, Sorry, that's wrong. <laughs> the teacher has to apologise first and say, Sorry, that's wrong. So the teacher apologises. Sorry, but that's wrong. What, what's the student's reaction? The adult student's. He sulks for one week. One week he will sulk. He'll sit there lemon-faced for the next week. And for Asians, 
he won't sit there lemon-faced, he'll sit there karela-faced for one week. Karela is bitter gourd. He'll sit there karela-faced, with the face of a bitter gourd for one week. Why was I told I'm wrong? And that's all they can think about. So when you wish to be a student, you have to learn to be humble, open-minded, open-hearted. Be willing to receive and accept criticism. Because it's not meant to belittle you, diminish you, put you down or humiliate you. It's meant to better you, help you. Raise you. I'll say some more about this later, but going back to the verse, Allah says, And of the people there is one who, whose words impress you in the worldly life. And the latter part of the verse I've spoken about, and he makes Allah a witness over what's in his heart, and he is a, the most quarrelsome adversary. But there's another part of this verse which is interesting, which I haven't touched upon, which is, his words impress you, and of the people is one whose words impress you, please you, in the worldly life. Now the meaning of fil hayat dunya in the worldly life, could be both. One, that his words impress you only in the worldly life. But they will be of, they will be of no use in the akhirah, in the hereafter. That's one meaning. Another meaning is that his words impress you not just in the worldly life, but of the worldly life. I.e., that's a munafiq, always talking about the dunya. His concern is the dunya. And that's all he talks about. And he's got a lot to say about it. So his words please you and impress you about the worldly life, of the worldly life. Because that's his primary concern. And he makes Allah a witness over what's in his heart. I've already explained this. And he is most quarrelsome of adversaries. Moving on to the next verse. And when he turns. I.e. when he turns away from you and he goes away from, from your presence. He strives on earth. He makes an effort on earth. He races and rushes on earth, running about. People run about to do good. People run around helping others. People run around trying to make their world and other people's world and lives better. But the munafiq, what does he do? He runs around. Two, he makes an effort, he strives, but his striving, his effort, is to what end? He strives to spread corruption on earth, to cause mischief, to create mischief on earth. And destroying land and livestock. Now that's the extreme. So, corruption doesn't always mean mayhem, anarchy, and destruction. Corruption can simply mean sinning. When we sin, we cause corruption. Because the original meaning of facade is to spoil. 
So when a person sins, they spoil their character, they spoil their heart, they spoil themselves. So facade can mean sin too. And our sins have an effect on the land, on the environment, on land and livestock, on people. Allah says in the Quran, ظَهَرَ الْفَسَادُ فِي الْبَرِّ وَالْبَحْرِ بِمَا كَسَبَتْ أَيْدِ النَّاسِ لِيُذِيقَهُمْ بَعْضَ الَّذِي عَمِلُوا لَعَلَّهُمْ يَرْجِعُونَ Fasad, corruption, strife, has appeared on earth as a result of what? بِمَا كَسَبَتْ أَيْدِ النَّاسِ As a result of what people's hands have committed. Why? لِيُذِيقَهُمْ بَعْضَ الَّذِي يَعْمِلُوا So that Allah may give them the taste of the consequences of some of the things they have done. لَعَلَّهُمْ يَرْجِعُونَ Perhaps they may return to the good way. So our sins, our misdeeds, have an effect not only on us, on others, on society, but actually on land and on tilth, on livestock, on animals. This is the teaching of the Qur'an, and that's the verse. Fasad, corruption, strife, discord has appeared on the land, and not just on the land, but in the sea. ظَهَرَ الْفَسَادُ فِي الْبَرِّ وَالْبَحْرِ Fasad has appeared, corruption has appeared, in the land and in the sea as a result of the sins of people. So that Allah may give them the taste, of some of what they have done, just some. لَعَلَّهُمْ يَرْجِعُونَ In the hope that they may return, i.e. to Allah and to sense and to piety. And so that they may desist from iniquity and sin. So our sins are a cause of corruption. Our sins are not innocent. We can't just simply say this is between me and Allah. Sins, different kinds of sins in different grades have an effect and an impact on us, on those around us. Fasad means spoiling. And our sins spoil not only us, but spoil things for everyone around us. And of course, the extreme version is that someone actually engages in widespread corruption, not just of personal corruption and sin, but actual destruction and violence. And that's what Allah refers to here too. لِيُهْلِكَ الْحَرْثَ وَالنَّسْلَ Sorry, لِيُفْسِدُ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَيُهْلِكَ الْحَرْثَ وَالنَّسْلَ That he strives on earth to cause corruption and to destroy land and livestock. وَاللَّهُ لَا يُحِبُّ الْفَسَادِ And Allah does not like corruption in any form. وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُ اتَّقِ اللَّهِ and now we return to the same topic. وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُ اتَّقِ اللَّهِ And when it is said to him, fear Allah. أَخَذَتُ الْعِزَّةُ بِالْإِثْمِ Arrogance in sin seizes him. And we really need to understand this. What this means is, it's a continuation of what I was saying earlier. That when a person's faults are pointed out to them, when their errors are are highlighted. A person reacts in different ways. 
either the person can be listening, receptive, accommodating, accepting, and humble, and therefore change for the better. Or the person can be arrogant, defiant, resisting, argumentative, and refuse to accept. Therefore, that person will never be corrected, will never be bettered or reformed. Unfortunately, they will learn the hard way, if they ever learn. And of such a person, Allah says that the hypocrites, see, these are the traits of hypocrisy. As believers, we, we have to strive to ensure that we do not adopt these characteristics of hypocrisy. That when it is said to him, fear Allah, arrogance and sin seizes him. We have to try and control and curb our anger. Anger can arise from insecurity, deep-seated insecurity. Anger can arise from arrogance. And in fact, arrogance itself can often be a mask for one's insecurity. So one's weak within, so the person acts strong as a mask. A person is deeply insecure and actually considers themselves lowly. But you can't reveal that to the world. Sometimes there are flashes. So how does a person mask one's deep-seated insecurity and one's sense of lowliness and worthlessness? By creating an image of superiority. They, deep down, they feel inferior, but they can't let that onto the world. So what do they do? They create an image and a mask and a facade of superiority. So I am better than you. I am better than everyone else. So arrogance, anger, arises from deep-seated insecurity. Arrogance can also arise from deep-seated insecurity. So we really need to control and curb our anger, because this anger clouds our judgments. It really clouds our judgments. It blinds us. And... No one, else, no one else can solve this for us. We have to work on ourselves consciously. We really do. Just as we never forget to eat and drink, we eat and drink every day. Because that's the nourishment of our bodies. We have to take time out every day for self-reflection, for contemplation, for introspection. We really do. Look at ourselves. What's wrong with me and how can I improve myself? How can I better myself? Anger has to be confronted. Anger has to be curbed and controlled. This anger will destroy us. Anger destroys marriages. So many people 
argue, and in their argument, they threaten one another with divorce, and they actually do proceed with a divorce. And I deal with talaq all the time. And some of the stories we get to hear, the wife contacts me and says, my husband gave me talaq. Wallahi, this is no joke. I say, how many times? She says, well, he said a million times. I said, what? And not, this has happened on more than one occasion. What? It's no surprise, but I have to confirm. Yeah, he was arguing, shouting, ranting and raving. And he was saying to me, I give you a million talaq. A million talaq. And then, two days later, the same husband turns around and says, says, Oh, what have I done? My wife, my wife, my wife. Sheikh, can you help us? I gave my wife talaq. How many? A million. So, and it's all done in anger. Now, why am I mentioning anger in this context? Because... It's that deep-seated insecurity again. When we are told, you are wrong, you are in error, you need to be corrected, you need to correct yourself, we can either see it as an attack on our psyche, on our being, on our very existence, on our person, and react accordingly, which means we argue, we fight, we threaten, we become defiant, and... Again, it's that psychological process, which is, if someone says to us, you are wrong, you know what the psychological process is? It's as follows. The person thinks that I was wrong. <coughs> that means I did something wrong. I was wrong. I wasn't complete. That means I wasn't perfect. That means I'm not perfect. So we have this black and white thinking. So if I'm not perfect, that means I'm worthless. I'm absolutely nothing. Me being wrong diminishes me, destroys me, belittles me, reduces me to nothing. And I can't have that. How can I be so worthless? And so, I cannot accept I'm wrong. Because if I accept I'm wrong, that means I'm a nobody. I'm worthless. I've been reduced to zilch, to nil. And I cannot accept. I must be perfect, and I have to be perfect to be complete. And so, this label that this person is trying to attach to me, of me being wrong, and therefore imperfect. And imperfection means I'm worthless, because it's, for us in our mind, it's either zero or 100. Nothing in between. It's either black or white. It's either nothing or everything. So if it's not everything, the automatic conclusion is, it's nothing. And I can't have that. So I have to resist. I have to be defiant. And so 
No, I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. You said this. No, I never. You did this. No, I didn't. You saw wrong. You heard wrong. And then the, uh, the other person actually begins to question their own sanity. Oh, maybe, well, I don't know. Gaslighting. This is known as gaslighting. It's part of the process of gaslighting. A mu'min doesn't think like that. A mu'min is balanced. And we should remind ourselves of this. And actually train ourselves. A mu'min is balanced. This balance will lead him to be, and her to be, humble. Confident without being arrogant. And humble without being insecure. And how is that? The mu'min realizes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created me. And Allah has not made his creation perfect. Allah has chosen not to make humans perfect in every way, physically. Because what's the idea of perfection? There's nothing wrong at all. Absolutely nothing. We are not perfect. Physically, mentally, emotionally. And there's no harm in it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says physically, and whomever we give age, we reverse in creation. What do they not understand? As we grow older, we become weaker physically. Our features change. Our bodies grow weak. We deteriorate until we depart from this world. Physically, we are not perfect. We are not designed to be healthy forever. We are not. Even Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and all of the Anbiya alayhi wa sallam suffered illness. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fell ill. He suffered fever. He suffered injuries. He suffered wounds. He lost his teeth in Uhud. One of the lesser known facts is as follows. In the fifth year of Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ actually fell off a horse. As a result of which he broke his leg. So for one month, Rasulullah ﷺ was convalescing. And he led the Sahaba, he wasn't able to stand in Salah. So he led the Sahaba عنهم, seated in Salah. And that was the time when he told them, that if the imam is reading salah standing, you stand too. And if he is leading salah sitting, you sit too. So in that period, the sahaba radiallahu anhum actually sat behind him in salah, not stood. In the fifth year of hijrah. In, late, in the tenth year of hijrah when the Prophet wasallam fell ill. In the final, I mean, not the tenth year of hijrah, but in the beginning of the eleventh year, when he finally fell ill in his final days, he still led them in salah, seated. But on that occasion, he told them that you must continue standing. 
So then you don't follow the Imam in that. But there was a period when the Imam, when the Sahaba عنهم, followed the Prophet وسلم, as he chose to pray. So he stood all of the time, so they stood behind him. But on that occasion, they prayed behind him seated, because he was seated. Why? Because he had fallen off a horse. He had fallen off a horse and he had broken his neck. Prophet was poisoned. He suffered the ill effects of poison. It became buried, but it resurfaced in the final days. So it was the poison which affected the Prophet in the final days and exacerbated his illness. So even Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Sayyidina Ayyub Sayyidina Ayyub alayhi salam, he remained ill for years, for years. And he remained so ill that many, many people shunned him and abandoned him. They couldn't even remain around him. So even the Anbiya alayhi salam suffered illness. They suffered headaches. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the final days, the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum relate that he came out with his head tied with an imamah. Dasimah. Oily. Why was it oily? Because the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was suffering severe and constant headaches in his final days. And... That oil was massaged on his head to relieve him of the pain. And it was so copious that the oil would even seep through his imam, his turban. And that was Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So we are not perfect. We don't look perfect. And Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam. He suffered stuttering and stammering. He suffered a speech impediment. Allah quotes him in the Quran, Allah told him, go to speak to her Pharaoh. He prayed to Allah. He said, oh Allah, expand and open my bosom for me. And make easy my affair for me. And oh Allah, unravel this impediment and obstruction and this knot in my tongue. So that they may understand what I say. The, one of the greatest of the prophets of Allah, Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam, had an uqdah, a knot in his tongue. He suffered a speech impediment. Allah says that of him. And in contrast, Allah says of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, رأس المنافقين, the leader of the hypocrites, وَإِذَا رَأَيْتَهُمْ تُعْجِبُكَ أَجْسَامُهُمْ وَإِنْ يَقُولُوا تَسْمَعْ لِقَوْلِهِمْ That when you see their bodies, they please you, and when they speak, you listen to them attentively. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was tall, handsome, well-built, extremely eloquent, charismatic. It doesn't mean anything. Of course, he wasn't perfect either. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even placed a knot in the tongue of one of his chosen prophets. The one who spoke to Allah, he had a knot in his tongue. 
موسى كليم الله had an uqdah in his lisan. Musa alayhi salam was Kalimullah, that was his title. The one who would converse with Allah. And the one who would converse with Allah had a knot in his tongue. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hasn't made any one of us perfect, physically. So we shouldn't think of ourselves as being perfect. And we shouldn't even think of it or consider it as an ideal. There can be no perfection in the body. So we are content with what Allah has given us. What we can change and improve, we try. Beyond that, alhamdulillah. Everyone has to deal with it. So what do the other people say? I went to visit someone in a hospital a few days ago. So someone was there and we were just conversing. So one of the health practitioners. And they said, you know, well... These are the cards you are dealt with. So some people like to make their way through and be strengthened with the thought that these are the cards we were dealt with. So when you are when cards are shuffled and your opponents in the game get aces and kings and queens and you are left with a humble two and three, you can't complain. These were the cards you dealt. You were dealt, so you have to make do with them. So even in health, if you if something happens to you, if you're short, or you're too tall, or you're too large, or you're too skinny, well, these were the cards you were dealt with. But that's one way of putting it. We we say this is the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa taala, and we are content with the qadr of Allah. So. One, we should realize we are not perfect in body. We are not perfect in mind. Allah has made no one perfect. Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi alayhi, he would never forget anything. As in that famous story, Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi went to the city and they tested him in, the memori- in, in his knowledge of hadith. A hundred of them, the masjid was full. Everyone was waiting for him when he arrived in the city. He was well received. Then they decided to test him. They would test people in hadith. So what the scholars, they got, uh, there was a council of scholars, they c- gathered and they said, we shall test Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari tomorrow. And how shall we test him? We shall choose ten scholars. And each of these ten scholars will be given ten hadith. And they were all ulama of hadith. And what they will do is that they will detach the chain of narration and all the names from the text of the hadith. And they will mix up these chains and these texts. So the chain belonging to this hadith, they will attach to another hadith. The chain belonging to that hadith, they will attach to this text of the hadith. And then we will ask Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari about this, about these chains, mixed up chains and texts, and we shall see whether he can uh, detect the error and the anomalies. So the next morning, the next day when they all gathered, they said, we would like to ask you about some hadith. He said, go ahead. One alim stood up. And he narrated the first hadith of his ten. 
with a different chain of narration attached to a different text of the hadith. When he finished the first hadith, Bukhari said, La a'rifu, I don't know this hadith. Second, third, fourth. They would narrate all of these ahadith with mixed chains. And the most Bukhari would say, he wouldn't say anything, he would just say, La a'rifu, la a'rifu, la a'rifu. I don't know it, I don't know it. After the first ten, he sat down. The second one stood up. He related his ten. He sat down. The third one stood up. He related his ten. Until the tenth one stood up and he completed his ten. They had now completed 100 confused chains with different texts. On each occasion, all Bukhari was, was saying was, La arifu, I don't know it. So many people who had no knowledge of hadith began thinking, What's this? He doesn't know anything. Is this the Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari everyone's talking about? Doesn't know anything. But the ulama had understood. The ulama had understood that this man knows what he's talking about. And then after the hundredth hadith, what did Bukhari do? He said, you, as for you, you related this first hadith. This is incorrect. This is a correct chain of narration that belongs to this text. Then this was a second. Then this was the third. Then this was the fourth. And he went through all hundred like that. Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, rahimahullah, the most famous commentator of hadith of the ninth century. He died in 852. He said, Hijri, he said, listen to his words. He said, it's not remarkable that Bukhari knew the correct version of all hundred hadith. He said that's not remarkable at all. Because he is a half of the hadith. What's remarkable. And what we must. And what we should. Lower our heads before. Is the fact that he heard. All of these confused chains of narrations. Attached to the wrong hadith. Just once. And he heard all hundred of them. And in one sitting he was able to memorize all hundred. He said, this is what's remarkable. This is what's remarkable. That was his memory. He was able to memorize 100 incorrect chains of narration attached to incorrect hadith. Not text, incorrect texts. The texts were correct, but the chains were wrong. In one sitting. That's, that was his memory. And yet he himself says, and there are countless other stories, yet he himself says, at times, when I'm traveling or away from home, Bukhara, my relatives would send me messages of greetings and salam. And when people would convey these greetings to me, I'd make a mental note that when I write back to my relatives, I will re reply to their salam. So people would meet me and say, oh, we've come from Bukhara. You're such and such a person, you're such and such a person from your family conveys their salam and their greetings to you. So Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari would say, I would make a note, meaning mentally, that I must reply to their salam. Then later I would sit down. And this is the man who says once, I just thought to myself that Recall the names of the students of Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu. 
every one of us, if I was to say to us, mention and recall the names of a hundred of your friends. A hundred. Could we manage? Could we manage a hundred friends? And that's our friends. Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu was one sahabi, one narrator. And just of that one narrator, out of so many other sahaba radiyallahu anhum, he had so many students. So Bukhari said, once I just thought of the students of Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu, that who were the students of Anas ibn Malik? فَحَضَرَنِي فِي سَاعَةٍ أَكْثَرُ مِنْ So in a moment, I was able to recall more than 300 names of the students of one Sahabi, Anas ibn Malik. That was his memory. And yet he says, when I would sit down to reply to the salams of my relatives, I'd sit down and I'd actually forget the names of the people who had given me salam. I wouldn't be able to recall the names of my own relatives. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives what he wills to whom he wills and Allah withholds what he wills from whom he wills. Einstein, he was a genius, but he never ever remembered his own phone number. And it wasn't a long mobile number, 079. In those days, in the early part of the last century, all you had to do was remember three digits. So you, you tell the exchange, the operator, link me into my phone. So they just pull the plug out and insert it into the phone slot. And it was three digits at the most, four digits. Einstein never ever was able to memorize his three, four digits of his home phone number. And on one occasion, it said that he was walking up and down the street looking at all the doors because he forgot his own door. It happens. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not made anyone perfect. So if ever you forget something, just remember Einstein and Bukhari. It's a consolation. So, <coughs> Allah has made no one perfect, physically, mentally, emotionally, either, or psychologically. We all have our flaws and imperfections. So the mu'min sees himself or herself in a very balanced way. I am not perfect in any way. And I shouldn't try to strive to that ideal because it's impossible. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given me much. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen not to give me certain things. And I am content with the qadr of Allah. What? When it comes to deeds and behavior, even in behavior, even in deeds, I am not perfect. For Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has said in a hadith related by Imam Tirmidhi, Imam Ibn Majah, and his son and Imam uh, and others, and this is a wording of Ibn Majah, All the children of Adam are sinners, and the best of sinners are those who oft turn to Allah in repentance. We are all sinners. We all make mistakes. Every single one of us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Afallahu anka, lima adhinta lahum. May Allah excuse you, O Messenger of Allah. Lima adhinta lahum. Why did you grant them permission about the hypocrites? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was seated 
Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum radiyallahu an came to speak to him in Makkah al-Mukarramah. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was engaged with, a, uh, with, one of the, with some of the Quraysh and he felt that he could attend to Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum later whilst he was speaking to some of the Quraysh who weren't Muslims and he was eager that they be given an audience and he gets an opportunity to speak to them to convince them of faith and of belief. So when Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum came to speak to him the Prophet ﷺ felt distracted and interrupted. So he didn't pay attention to him. So Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum went away. Then he came back. Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum came back. So the Prophet ﷺ was slightly irritated that why does he keep coming here? So the Prophet ﷺ, because he wanted to speak to the Quraysh. So the Prophet ﷺ, he was very mild, very mild mannered, very soft. So the, the extent of his disapproval and the extent of his annoyance was that he frowned. Prophet ﷺ frowned and he turned away. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verses, عَبَسَ وَتَوَلَّى الْأَعْمَى وَمَا يُدْرِيكَ لَعَلَّهُ أَوْ فَتَنْفَعُهُ أَمَّا مَنْ يَسْتَغْنَى فَأَنْتَ لَهُ تَصَدَّى وَمَا عَلَيْكَ أَلَّا يَزَّكَّى وَأَمَّا مَنْ جَاءَكَ يَسْعَى وَهُوَ يَخْشَى فَأَنْتَ عَنْهُ تَلَاءَ Allah told the Prophet وسلم, in the third person. Allah chided the Prophet وسلم, in the third person. عَبَسَ وَتَوَلَّى He frowned and turned away. أَنْجَاءَهُ الْأَعْمَى Because a blind man came to him. وَمَا يُدْرِيكَ لَعَلَّهُ يَزَّكَّى Then it's a shift to, first per- to second person. And what do you know? Meaning, O oh Messenger of Allah. What do you know? Maybe he wishes to be purified. And then the verses continue praising Abdullah ibn Maktoum and condemning those that the Prophet was speaking to. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala corrected the Prophet on a few occasions. On one occasion, Allah, because the Prophet ﷺ was very eager, Allah told him, وَإِن كَانَ كَبُرَ عَلَيْكَ إِعْرَاضُهُمْ فَإِنِ اسْتَطَعْتَ أَن تَبْتَغِيَ نَفَقًا فِي الْأَرْضِ أَوْ سُلَّمًا فِي السَّمَاءِ فَتَأْتِيُهُمْ بِآيَةٍ Thou Messenger of Allah, if their turning away from deen is so heavy and burdensome on you, then What's the solution? فَإِنِ اسْتَطَعْتَ أَن تَبْتَغِيَ نَفَقًا فِي الْأَرْضِ Well, in that case, if you can find a tunnel in the ground or a ladder going up to the sky so that you can come back to them with a sign. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is chiding the Prophet sallallahu in a loving way. So Allah azza wa jal corrected the Prophet sallallahu on a number of occasions in the Qur'an. But that was Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. As far as we are concerned, we are sinners. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has told us that. In fact, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would get angry. He would. And he said it so beautifully. He said, oh Allah, I am a human. And I become angry just as humans become angry. They humans become angry. 
So Allah, if I have ever sworn at someone or cursed someone, then O Allah, make this verbal abuse of that person a compensation and a forgiveness and an expiation for them in the Akhirah. If I have ever, in my anger, said something I shouldn't have to someone, O Allah, make this a means of forgiveness for them. But khayran, we should remember and realize that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has told us all the children of Adam are sinners and the best of sinners are those who often turn to Allah in seeking forgiveness and in repentance. Once we realize that I'm a sinner, it doesn't give me a carte blanche to sin, it doesn't give me a free hand to sin, but no, it does remind me that I need to be balanced. So I strive to be good, I try to be good, but if I fall, the answer is not to remain fallen, but to rise to stumble and to continue. Fall again, the answer is not to remain fallen, but to rise, brush off the dirt, and continue. If we sin, seek forgiveness, to tawbah, to istighfar, and carry on. Try to be good, strive to be good, and be balanced in our opinion, which is, indeed, I am flawed. My character is flawed. My personality is flawed. I have defects. I am sinful. I am far from perfect. I have blemishes. I am imperfect. I am broken in many ways. I need to be mended. I need to be repaired. For that, I am willing to listen. I am willing to be receptive. I am willing to be told. I am glad for any help that comes my way. I am not utterly worthless. But I am not up there either. One of the ulama of the past, he was walking, he was in the markets with his students. As he was traveling, uh, sorry, as he was walking in the markets or riding in the markets with his students, there were people in the markets, street urchins and various people, who began abusing the sheikh. Verbally abusing him. You are like this, you are like that. The students became angry. And he calmed them down. Calm, remain calm, all of you. Don't react, don't respond. Remain silent. Be patient. They all did. When he returned to his place of, his hospice, his place of study, wherever he was, he summoned the same students who were with him in the market and he said to them, come here, come around me. And he said, you see that chest? If you remember, the trunk, you know, the olden trunks. So you see that trunk? Open it. They opened it. It was full of letters. The whole trunk was full of letters. So he began taking the letters and distributing them randomly. He said, here, take this, read, 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 read. What do the letters say? Some of the letters were saying, you are Shaykh al-Islam, you are the Shaykh of Islam, you are the greatest scholar alive, you are the most saintly person we know. That's what some of the letters were saying. Other letters were saying, you are the scum of the earth. You are the lowliest of the low. 
You are the worst. You are the most sinful and corrupt person we know. And then he said, see, I receive letters of all kinds from all types of people. Some hail me as being the greatest saint alive, the greatest scholar alive, and others reduce me to the lowest of the low, and they believe of me that I am the most sinful and corrupt person on earth. I am neither this, and I am neither that. I know what my relationship is with Allah. I know what my relationship with Allah is. I do not let these people's abuse bring me down to that level. Nor do I allow these people's praise and flattery to raise me to that level. I do not for a moment believe that I am Sheikh al-Islam. Nor do I for a moment believe that I am the worst of the worst. Even Harun al-Rashid, the Abbasid emperor, he was in the harem of Mecca. And in those days, at least people could approach the monarchs. So he was in the Mataf, the al-Masjid al-Haram, the area of Tawaf in al-Masjid al-Haram. When... A common person came up to him and began scolding him. Not just abusing him, but he began scolding him with a very harsh tongue, in a very harsh manner, and telling him, you need to do this, you did this, you did that, you did this. SubhanAllah, there are two lessons for us to learn. Harun al-Rashid was the Abbasid emperor. The greatest empire of the region at the time. Imagine. The 1001 nights, full of splendor, glory, riches, and wealth, are all about Harun al-Rashid's reign of <coughs> reign. Harun al-Rashid was once seated and in an open area, surrounded by comforts and luxuries. And he saw a cloud laden with rain, and in very fluent in very flowing and eloquent Arabic, he said to the cloud, addressing the cloud, O cloud, rain here or don't rain here. Go and rain elsewhere, but know this, it doesn't matter. For wherever you rain and pour down your water, the tax of the produce of that rain will ultimately come to my feet. Because that's how vast that Basid empire was. And that's how rich it was. That's how powerful he was. Harun al-Rashid would receive homage from the great rulers and emperors across the world, including Europe. They would send gifts of homage to him. So the same Abbasid ruler, Harun al-Rashid, was accosted in al-Masjid al-Haram by a common person who began scolding him and speaking rudely to him, saying that, he felt he was doing al-amr bil-ma'roof wa nahyu munkar meaning the, the commoner felt that he was enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. So we have two lessons to learn. First one is, how did Harun al-Rashid react? Did he tell his guards, arrest this man, or stop him? No, he let him speak. He was willing to listen to him. That's the first lesson. And that was Harun al-Rashid. The second lesson is, he did say something to him in reply. He said, look, if you want to advise me, then there's a way of doing it. You don't speak like this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the best of people, Musa and Harun alayhim as to Pharaoh, the worst of people. And he said to them, 
اذهبا الى فرعون انه طغى فقولا له قولا لينا لعله يتذكر او يخشى that both of you go to Pharaoh for indeed he has transgressed and both of you say a soft word to him in the hope that he may take heed or he may fear. So Allah sent the best of his creation, two of the messengers of Allah, to the worst of his creation to Pharaoh, and he even told them, speak softly. So you should speak softly to me, for neither am I, as wor- neither am I so bad that I am worse than Pharaoh, nor are you so great that you are better than Musa and Harun. So a believer knows his position, of balance. He may not be an angel, but he is also not the lowest of the low. And when you, when a believer looks at himself or herself in that balanced manner, it gives the believer hope that, yes, I'm not perfect, but I am not totally broken, that no good can come of me. Yes. There's a lot I can do to improve myself. There's a lot I can do to mend and repair myself, to better myself. And in doing so, I need help. When we go to the doctor, those of us that do, there's a phenomenon in medicine known as a worried well. The worried well. Which is a reference to those people who are actually quite healthy. But... They want to be the best. So, they monitor themselves. They regularly take their measurements. Medically, they monitor themselves in every way. And any slight disruption, any slight anomaly, they become concerned. They go to the doctors. Doctor, this is what's wrong with me. I've checked myself. I'm monitoring myself. Here are my readings, here are my charts. And what they do, this is actually in the NHS, this is an accepted phenomenon, that the worried well, and all over the world actually, they sap the resources, the limited resources and time of the healthcare professionals and of the whole healthcare industry. Because they are well, but they easily get worried. What this tends to do is that it distracts and diverts the resources, time and attention and skills of the healthcare professionals away from those people who are neither well nor worried (laughs) and who actually deserve their help and their attention. So the others couldn't care less. But they are the ones who actually need help. But the ones who are well, the worried well, they are the ones who sap the resources of the healthcare professionals, their resources, their time. So, when we go to the doctor, those of us who do, and the doctor tells us, first thing, lose weight. We may not like it. Or the doctor tells us, stop smoking. We may not like it. What's our reaction? Do we become violent? Do we tell the doctor, who are you? 
Who are you to tell me? How dare you? That's insulting. No. If you do, the doctor will say you do need attention. You do need help. But not at this surgery. You need help at the mental hospital. You need a checkup from the neck up. I only deal with the lower part of the body. You need a checkup from the neck up. So we don't react. We listen. We are receptive. In fact, 99.99% of people will go to the doctors with an open, receptive mind and humbly. And when they leave, the majority of people will at least think, they may not always be able to practically follow the advice because we have our temptations, our weaknesses, and we, give, we succumb to our temptations. So, but we don't reject the advice. And what does it, if the doctor says, stop doing this, stop eating this, stop drinking this, stop doing this, stop doing that, we listen to everything. And we actually go away thinking, you know, I have to listen to what the doctor's saying. I have to act on the advice. وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُ اتَّقِ اللَّهِ The verse, when it is said to him, Fear Allah, أَخْذَتُ الْعِزَّةُ بِالْإِثْنِ Arrogance and sin seizes him. This is a good demonstration. You know what the equivalent of that is? It's like us going to the doctor. We say, doctor, I have pains here. I have this, I have that. Doctor, it's a quick checkup. Right. You need to stop doing this. And our reaction is, أَخْذَتُ الْعِزَّةُ بِالْإِثْنِ Yeah? How dare, who are you? How dare you? That's, that's There's nothing wrong with me. Nothing wrong with me. Idiot, why are you here? <coughs> that's the equivalent of Arrogance and sin seizes him. Now I've given all of these examples. We do exactly the same when it comes to the diseases of the heart and the diseases of our deeds. We do something wrong, we commit sins, someone advises us, fear Allah. What should be the reaction of a mu'min? The reaction of a mu'min is, I accept. Please make dua for me. Please help me. Advise me. What can I do? How can I become better? How can I repent? Allah. Wallahi, these people inspire others more than pious worshippers. I have seen people who have come and they have admitted and confessed to their sins. But do you know, there is such humility in them that they say, you know, I'm a sinful person. Please pray for me. What can I do to become better? How can I repent? Once our late Shaykh Hazrat Mawlana Yusuf Mutala, rahimahullah, he related a story to us of a man who came to him. And when he related this story to us, he had tears, his eyes were moist. A man came to him who was a Muslim. 
and he had a very large restaurant with a huge bar and it was a very plush restaurant. It wasn't just your average, it was a quite high-class restaurant and he was quite rich. He was a Muslim. Someone spoke to him. Obviously he had heard and he knew that alcohol is haram for a Muslim. And he knew that. But you see, one doesn't know when the words of Allah or the words of his Rasul will hit you and touch you. This is why I keep on saying continue coming to the durus. The idea isn't that you will learn something new every time. You do not know when a single word of the Qur'an or a single word of the words of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa will penetrate your heart and mind and change. Last year, someone approached me and told me that I once attended your Jumu'ah khutbah. Highly intelligent, educated person, someone who's religious as well, and who takes a keen interest in knowledge. And he told me this last year. And he said, I attended one of your Jumu'ahs last year, meaning the year before. So many, many months before. So he told me this in summer, and the Jumu'ah he was referring to was in November the year before. And he said, I heard one hadith from you in that Jumu'ah khutbah. And he said, do you know, that one hadith hit me. Now the surprising thing is, that wasn't a new hadith. I had related the hadith on many occasions. And I actually recall relating that hadith in his presence before, previously. But no. And I'm sure he heard that hadith from others too. And it's a famous hadith related by a Muslim in his sahih. But for some reason, given his circumstances, the changes in his life, the state of his heart and mind and his emotions on that particular occasion, he believes that on that one occasion, that hadith, which he had definitely heard before, that one hadith from the whole khutbah hit him so hard that he actually changed his thinking and his perception. And that's what happens. So going back to this story, this person knew that alcohol is haram for a Muslim. But on one occasion, someone found an opportunity to speak to him. And do you know what? He was receptive. He was receptive. And he listened humbly. And he said, when that person spoke to him, the other person had the courage to speak to him. But they did it with, with manners, with wisdom, with love, with affection, with concern, with sympathy. Allah knows what that other person said to him. But he actually related this to our late teacher, rahimahullah. He said he went straight away to his restaurant and he actually smashed every single bottle of alcohol on the premises. And he made a vow that he would never, ever touch or sell it again. So when our Hazrat rahimahullah, related this story, he said, 
he, he, he had moist eyes. And he would say, Kya Iman, Kya Iman. He said, what Iman, what Iman. And it's true. There are, so I was saying when such people come, and I have had many experiences, their humility, their contrition, their remorse, their feelings shine through and they bring tears to our eyes. And such people's tawbah and repentance is most beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It truly is. It truly is. And everybody, we can repent. So as I was saying, once we realize that I am not perfect, but I am not completely broken, and there is much that I can improve on, and I need help, and I am glad for anyone's help, then, when you have that mindset, in a very balanced way, you can be receptive. And when you are receptive, another believer can act as a mirror to you and point out your flaws, point out your blemishes, point out your marks, point out your shortcomings. And what do you do? You don't become angry in your receptive, receptive attitude. You listen to what they have to say attentively, you accept it, and you try to change it. It makes you a much better person. That's the behavior of a mu'min, like Umar ibn al-Khattab, when people would speak to him, he would accept. Being who he was, he would accept. He once said that he was speaking about Mahr. That you shouldn't give so much in dowry. What's his practice of giving so much in dowry? So a woman stood up and she said, Oh, Amirun Mu'mineen, how can you disapprove of giving huge amounts in dowry when Allah says in the Quran, that if you have given any one of them the women qintaran fala ta'khudhu minhu that if you have given anyone a qintar meaning a hoard a whole heap in dowry then do not take anything thereof and that was publicly umar radiyallahu anhu was speaking as amirul mu'minin and a woman stood up and corrected him how did amirul mu'minin umar radiyallahu anhu react allahu akbar he said, Umar was incorrect and the lady was correct, publicly. Khawlah bint Thalabah anha, she was the lady who was remonstrating with her husband after which, and with, in fact she was remonstrating with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Her husband, in his anger, he uttered words which the Arabs originally believed to be words of divorce. She came to the Prophet وسلم, and said, Ya Rasulullah, I've spent my whole life with him and born his children and now in my old age he divorces me. And he, he says these words to me. But he didn't actually divorce me, he said these words to me. Prophet وسلم, said to her, I do not see except that you are separated from him. She said, Ya Rasulullah, he didn't actually divorce me, he compared me to his mother. But he didn't divorce me. So the Prophet وسلم, said, I do not believe, except, I do not see except that you are separated from him. And she was remonstrating with him, Ya Rasulullah, but he never uttered the words of divorce. He merely compared me to his mother. So she was remonstrating with the Prophet وسلم, pleading with him. And the Prophet وسلم, was saying the same thing. She was saying the same thing. 
So Allah Azza wa Jal revealed the verses of the Quran. قَدْ سَمِعَ اللَّهُ قَوْلَ الَّذِي تُجَادِلُكَ فِي زَوْجِهَا وَتَشْتَكِي إِلَى اللَّهُ وَاللَّهُ يَسْمَعُ تَحَاوَرَكُمَا Verily Allah has heard the words of that lady who was remonstrating with you regarding her husband and Allah was listening to your conversation. That lady was Khawlah bint Thalabah radiyallahu anha. Oh, once Umar radiyallahu anhu was walking with his entourage. He was Amir al-Mu'mineen and he had people around him. An old lady met him. And she stopped him in the middle of the street. And she said, huh? Look at you now. I remember when you were young, we used to call you Umair. Little Umar. And now look at you. Amir al-Mu'mineen, people around you. And Umar radiallahu She's saying all kinds of things to him. And Umar radiallahu is silent. His companions are thinking, what's going on here? How can she be speaking to him like this? She then left. So they said to him, Oh, Amir al-Mu'mineen, how could you allow this old lady to talk to you like this? He said, Do you know who she is? She is Khawlah bint Thalaba, of whom Allah said, Qad sami'allahu qawla allati tujadiluka fi zawjiha wa tashtaki ila Allah. Why wouldn't Umar listen to the words of a lady whom Allah listened to from above the heavens? Umar was humble, truly humble. Whenever anyone spoke of Allah and his Rasul to him, he would come to a halt. In Sahih al-Bukhari, it's mentioned of him, Umar would come to a halt excessively before the Book of Allah, which means whenever the Qur'an was recited to him, Umar and for him that was a red line. Anyone could recite a verse of the Qur'an to him. And Umar would come to a halt, an abrupt halt. He wouldn't argue, he wouldn't debate, he wouldn't say anything. He would accept the words of Allah, recited by anyone. Once, someone met him in Hajj and said, Oh, there is a person that we know and that we hear. He recites the Qur'an in a way that we do not recognize. Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, when he heard this, it's a narration of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his Musnad, it said that he began, he became angry. And what did I say right at the beginning? He actually became inflated. The narrator says it was as though he was inflating. That's how angry he was. And he shouted, who is this person who recites in such a manner? Who is this person? Everyone around him was petrified. And he was actually inflating. These are the words. It was as though he was becoming larger in his anger. Then someone told him that the person's name is Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. Ibn Umm Abd. So as soon as he heard the name of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, radiyallahu anhu, Umar began calming down straight away. And then he said, this was his reply. He said, if anyone has the right to recite in this manner, then it is Abdullah ibn Masrud. He respected him and he loved him because of his knowledge of the Quran and his knowledge.
The words of Allah and the words of His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa I relate one more story and I end with this. Uyaynat ibn Hisn al-Fazari was a Bedouin leader of the Banu Fazara. He, was an unre- uh, he spoke in a very unrefined manner. He was very rough in his speech. In fact, on one occasion, he spoke roughly in front of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So, after the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Uyinat ibn Hisn al-Fazari came to Medina and his nephew was one of the confidants and the council members of Umar and consultative committee. So he was an enlightened young man. So his uncle, Uyinat ibn Hisn, he said to him that you have a good connection with Umar ibn al-Khattab, Amir al-Mu'mineen, so secure an audience with him for me. He wanted wealth. So the nephew arranged for an audience with Amir al-Mu'mineen, Umar ibn al-Khattab. So the next day when he came, as soon as he entered, straight away, no greeting, no courtesy, nothing. Hey, ibn al-Khattab, you give no wealth and you are not just in your distribution of wealth. And straight away after saying, hey, ibn al-Khattab, he made an accusation of injustice in the distribution of wealth to Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu. Umar radiyallahu anhu was a human being. So he was accused of being unjust in the distribution of wealth. He reacted. He became angry. And he was about to lunge at him. Truly, physically, he was about to lunge at Uyaynat ibn Hisn. When suddenly, the nephew intervened. The nephew of, of Uyaynat ibn Hisn. And he said, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, Allah says in the Qur'an, Seek the path of excusing and forgiveness and enjoin the good and ignore the ignorant. And O Amir al-Mu'mineen, this one, meaning this uncle of mine, he is one of the ignorant. Allahu Akbar. As soon as the nephew recited this, this verse of the Qur'an, Umar radiallahu's reaction was, even though a moment before he had been accused of injustice, and he was extremely angry as a as a natural reaction and as a valid reaction, Umar fell silent before the words of Allah. Completely silent. And he acted on them, ignored him, excused him, forgave. This is the behavior of a mu'min when he is corrected. And as he used to say, may Allah have mercy on a man who gives me a gift of my errors. But a a munafiq, a munafiq reacts in anger, in indignation, in defiance and in resistance. When it's said to him, fear Allah, arrogance in sin seizes him. His reaction is, he's wrong. And when you try to point out that he's wrong, his reaction is, huh? How dare you? The person reacts in defiance, in anger, in indignation. This is not a good sign. A believer does not react in this way. This is the reaction of a munafiq by the text of the Holy Quran. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us amongst those who are open-minded and open-hearted, who are receptive to constructive criticism, who are receptive to good counsel, to good advice, who recognize in a very balanced manner that they are not angels and they are not devils, but somewhere in between. 
This is why one uh, our Shaykh Rahimahullah told us of one of the other famous ulama and students of Shaykh Al Hadith, Mawlana Muhammad Zakaria Rahimahullah. He was a khalifa and a student and a disciple of Shaykh Al Hadith, Mawlana Muhammad Zakaria Rahimahullah. So Hazrat told us that he, whenever he would sign off the letter, in Urdu especially, they have this custom and tradition that at the end, they, even in English, in the medieval period, they would, how would they sign off? These days, just hi, and at the bottom, uh, the name. But in, in medieval times, how would they sign off? Your humble servant. Your most lowly servant. In the medieval period, that's how they would write to lords and... Uh, others. So in Urdu as well, there's a tradition that if they write a letter at the bottom, they normally write Ahqar, Ahqar Zaid, Ufi'an, meaning the most lowly and contemptible one, Zaid, may he be forgiven. Or another thing they, they normally write in Urdu is Najiz. Najiz means the one who's nothing. Najiz Abd, Najiz Abdullah, Allah. They write a letter and they write at the bottom Najiz, meaning nobody, nothing, the one who's nothing, Abdullah, may Allah forgive him. So he says of one of the Khulafa of Hazrat Shaykh Rahimahullah that whenever he would write a letter, he would sign off, but he wouldn't say Najiz, he would write Kuchiz. <laughs> he would write Kuchiz, meaning someone. <laughs> of something, some worth. And then he would write his name. So he, he, he was smiling, he was very humorous. He said he would actually write, sign off his letters by saying, good geez. So it's true, we should realize that we are not absolutely nobodies, we are not angels, we're somewhere in between. That gives us hope and scope for improvement, for betterment. And it makes us realize that we are far from being perfect and there's a lot that we can improve on. We are willing to be receptive and accept that advice and help and assistance and we should follow in the footsteps of the noble Sahaba radiallahu anhum and especially in the footsteps of Amir al-Mu'mineen Umar ibn al-Khattab remembering his words may Allah have mercy on a man who gives me a gift of my errors may Allah make us among such people may Allah protect us from defiance and arrogance in sin from rejection and resistance of good advice and good counsel and from refusing to acknowledge and accepting our mistakes. And it's true. How can we ever hope to repair and reform when we don't even accept that there's anything wrong with us or that we've done something wrong? There's no acknowledgement. There's no need for repair, no need for reform. So acknowledgement is the first thing. Acceptance is the first thing. وَصَلَّى اللَّهُ وَسَلَّمْ عَلَىٰ عَبْدِهِ وَرَسُولِ نَبِيِّنَا مُحَمَّدٍ وَعَلَىٰ آلِهِ وَصَحْبِهِ يَجْمَعِينَ سُبْحَانَكَ اللَّهُمْ وَبِحَمْدِكَ شَدْوَ اللَّهِ إِلَهَ إِلَّا أَنْتَ أَسْتَغْفِرُكَ وَأَتُوبُ إِلَيْكَ